This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 to 1. And where are you listening to us? Are you commuting? Are you heading back to the office, possibly? Or are you on the way home from the pub, maybe? Uh, let me know uh, where you are. You can email me, matt.chorley at times.radio. Where do you listen to the podcast? It'd be nice to know. Anyway, as you may have heard, pubs, restaurants, non-essential retail have all reopened in England, at least... So, I managed to persuade Times Radio to let me do the show and the podcast from the pub. Coming up, we've got a discussion about the future of pubs. Uh, but first, we kick off with our columnists panel. It's uh, Liberace, it's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Let's uh, start, first of all, with the, the, sort of the big political story. Uh, David Cameron uh, finally breaking his silence to concede that it was probably a mistake to lobby ministers informally on behalf of the financier Lex Greenshill, uh, releasing was it a 1,200-word statement having ignored all inquiries for the last few weeks. What do you make of this, Rachel? How damaging is this for David Cameron, do you think? I think it is really damaging because his whole shtick was that he was a sort of decent chap and you know, played by the rules, um, very different to Boris Johnson. And it just looks a bit dodgy, doesn't it? What I think is really fascinating is all through the Cameron years, I remember feeling there were, it was text message government. So cabinet, cabinet ministers, rather than writing briefing papers or, or white papers or proper memos to one another, including the civil service, they'd send text messages to each other. And it was a way of, it was partly during the coalition, I think it started, because it was a way of bypassing the Lib Dems, but also a way of bypassing civil servants. And now that sort of text message government has come back to haunt David Cameron. I remember um, during the Theresa May years, you'd sometimes get text messages from ministers from inside cabinet, even though they weren't supposed to have their phones with them. There were, it was this sort of culture has developed where it's now WhatsApp as well, but it's, it's rather than everything being formally minuted and proper meetings and officials involved, it's all via text message, WhatsApp, secret sort of squirrel messages sent to, from friends, one friend to another. It was the meritocracy that... David Cameron created in Downing Street, wasn't it? And now that sort of chumocracy is um, coming back to bite him. 
and, and Libby, that's the issue here, isn't it? Is, it? is that, you know, there's nothing wrong with lobbying, but the way to have done it would have been to have written an email or a letter to the Chancellor asking for a meeting uh, in which civil servants would have been present to make sure everything's above board. It's the, you know, uh, popping into somebody's text messages or DMs or whatever, uh, where it's all a bit off the books. That's, the, that's, that's what, although David Cameron insists he broke no rules, that's what uh, adds to the sense that David Cameron having Rishi Sunak's number and being able to do that little bit of lobbying on the side uh, most businesses don't have Rishi Sunak's phone number. But the whole the whole thing just stinks of so much absolutely cavalier, posh casualness. I mean, if the very fact that he allowed this guy Greensill to call himself on his card as senior advisor to the government when Cameron says, oh, he only met him twice, you know, uh, that's not a senior advisor. And it, it hasn't been made at all clear in all these conversations that actually the beneficiary is Greensill. You know, that might be perhaps a little bit of a convenience for the NHS, this new payment system they're talking about. But, but just basically means there's more money for Greensill to invest rapidly and make money out of rapidly it just feels so sort of casual and I'm not sure Cameron even really understood the system that was being uh, promoted he, he was just sort of doing a shruggy favour for a friend that's the way it feels from outside certainly uh, uh, what about this question of what a former Prime Minister does? He's obviously much younger than most Prime Ministers who, who uh, leave Downing Street and, you know, have some time on their hands. What you, what's the... You know, you've got Theresa May still in the House of Commons, basically giving Boris Johnson lots of grief. Uh, you know, uh, Tony Blair and John Major perhaps enjoying a bit of a renaissance ball. What, what is the role of a former Prime Minister? Should it, would it have been better if David Cameron had done a sort of David Miliband and just gone off and run a big worthy organisation and not looked like he was grubbing around for extra cash. Libby? I think you either stay in politics, i.e. you stay in the back benches and do a decent job, as Theresa May is trying to do, or you get the hell out and uh, do something unconnected and charitable. And you certainly don't take a job off somebody who you've done a big, massive PR favour to during your time in office. It, it just, it, it's the revolving door. It's just wrong. Uh, what, what, what do you think, Rachel? What, what is the right way for a former Prime Minister to behave? I think you have to be incredibly responsible. You've got, it's very hard, you know, you've done your most interesting job by the time you're 50. He, David Cameron's never going to have as, a job that's as interesting or powerful again. Um, but it, you have to be responsible with that um, power you have, and you still do have influence as a former Prime Minister. Um, and Tony Blair made a mistake because he went off and made lots of money, but then I think he realised that actually he could still have influence if he's done, and he's now been, over the pandemic, produced some really interesting policy papers and ideas, and he's been ahead of the game on the vaccine, etc. John Major as well has become a sort of rather trusted elder statesman, um, so you have to, I think, commit yourself to something sort of in public service still. And you, it can't just be about money. I think the other thing that really fascinates me is all these prime ministers now and politicians, they're mixing, they're rubbing shoulders with the super rich. And the super rich have got richer and richer. And these billionaires who are floating around with their private jets, how many private jets did Greensill have? And their yachts and etc. And they lose touch with actually, they are already pretty rich, these former prime ministers, but they want to become, they think that it's normal to live this life of the super rich, and it isn't. And so they start to want to make so much money with, so that they can have, you know, handmade shirts and get their teeth done and go around in private jets <laughs> the whole time. Um, but actually, they, they already are very privileged. And I thought um, 
Gordon Brown now with his initiative about trying to get vaccines to the poorest countries. There is a role for a former prime minister to do good things still. And they, they have to realise that their life, having chosen to be in public service, their life has to stay in public service, really. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Gordon Brown obviously making the, the case for uh, rich countries to help out poor countries with their vaccine. I did. Think, I suspect that there may have been a wry smile in the Tony Blair Towers, who's been banging on about vaccines for months. Uh, yes. Gordon, Gordon, Gordon Brown is now coming along with a, with a sort of uh, similar argument. Um, let's touch on Prince Philip. And obviously lots of people, you know, there's been lots and lots of discussion about uh, Prince Philip on uh, uh, Times Radio over the last uh, few days since his uh, death was announced on Friday. But Libby, a lovely column from you today, partly because you, you knew him. Um, Explain to us how you knew him, but also um, focusing on the fact that he had a sense of humour. And frankly, um, it's one of the things which goes uncelebrated sometimes compared to other things, but is so important, important for, for everyone. I think it's important for anybody, and especially if you have to lead a slightly absurd life, as anyone in the royal family does. He saw the absurdity of it from very early years. In fact, apparently, even when uh, uh, you know he, he was always up for a bit of subversion. Apparently, when he was at the Kurt Hahn School in Germany, they had to throw him out and send him to Gordonston because he kept laughing whenever they did the Heil Hitler salute as well before the war. But uh, I knew him because he was a trustee of the National Maritime Museum and a regular committee member there at the same 10 years that I was and it was always very entertaining and um, you know he, he sometimes would be a bit sharp if he disapproved of something usually that the labels weren't big enough uh, or that there was inadequate um, uh, sort of explanation of some a piece of engineering which he was very into but we did get him I persuaded him to come to the Trafalgar Tavern uh, where we had these sea words evenings of readings of poetry and songs and things about the sea and uh, it was because Prince Andrew had come and then the Duke said to me at the next meeting, he said, gather there was a good party at the pub, notice nobody invited me. And so I said, look, look sir, you know, your private secretary's had the invitation for some time. And so he said, okay. And he came and I said, you can read what you like, uh, two passages. And he chose, uh, he didn't choose anything solemn at all. He chose um, a piece of Uffa Fox about an exploding life raft. And then the piece from Three Men in a Boat about being towed by girls, giggling and shrieking and losing their shawls. And, uh... Oh, I think we might have slightly lost Libby there in, a, in a, <laughs> she heads towards her boat. Dragging her shawls. What, what have you made of it all? Um, uh, but sort of a few days later now, uh, Rachel, the sort of, uh, you know, different takes on, on uh, Prince Philip and his role. And, and actually the fact that they're actually having a sense of humour probably got him through the day as much as anything else. Definitely. And also what struck me as well about Libby's piece, and I think she's absolutely right, it was this sense of uh, also maybe, how do you describe it, self-denial, that our culture now is all about self-realisation and, you know, how do you express yourself and individuality, personalisation, you know, expressing yourself on Instagram, the Instagram influencers with their photos in Dubai or wherever it is, your favourite meal being tweeted left, right and centre. Everyone's got an opinion. Everyone's pushing themselves forward. It's all about the individual. And Prince Philip was of this era and of this type of person who denied himself that. He was always playing second fiddle to the Queen. And I'm sure you're right, humour is a way of getting through that. But it was also this huge sense of duty... Uh, self-denial, not being self-obsessed, quite the opposite, being willing to put yourself into the background uh, and not push yourself forward the whole time. Um, that's the most remarkable thing to me, and particularly for a man of his generation to play second, second fiddle to a woman throughout his life. 
Um, that must have at times been quite difficult and I'm sure required that sense of humour. But also what seems to me the most admirable thing about him. And he knew that that was his role and that that was the way things were. Uh, and I suppose that's that, that's the thing. One of the things I sort of always slightly pride myself on uh, our children. If if I if I've taught them nothing, it's to, uh, it's to nothing else. It's to at least see the funny side of a situation. You know, when it's yes. when a holiday yeah. goes wrong or uh, you know whatever, uh, laughing about it rather than being terribly dramatic or upset about it is is definitely the best uh, the best skill. Uh, just finally, um, Rachel, I wanted to ask you about Alan Duncan, Sir Alan. Duncan. Oh, yes. he was obviously on the yes. show last week. You spoke to Luke Jones. Uh, about his uh, phenomenally rude diaries about um, uh, all of his colleagues when he was a, a foreign office uh, minister. You've interviewed him uh, for the Times as well today. What do you, what, what do you make of uh, Sir Alan? Well, he's just a tremendous gossip and, you know, very entertaining. <laughs> you will know, Matt. Over the, He's very nice about you in the book. I don't know if you see, he, he, you're, you're one of the few who don't get criticised. You're absolutely <laughs> praised as a brilliant journalist and very funny and everything, rightly. Um, but he's he's just enormously entertaining, but also he's been there for so many years. I mean, I went to see him in his house in Gayfair Street in Westminster and that was where John Major's cam- leadership campaign headquarters, um, William Hague's campaign was run from there for a bit. Theresa May's uh, advisor Fiona Hill used it as her press office for a bit. It's been at the heart of sort of power and plotting for decades and he's seen, there's photos in his house of him, Alan Duncan <laughs> with Margaret Thatcher, you know, Major Lamont, all the grandees. And then he looks at this current crop of cabinet ministers and just thinks, what has happened? And Boris Johnson, he's, he worked as his deputy, obviously, at the Foreign Office and just phenomenally rude about him, how <laughs> selfish, you know, terrible for Britain. In fact, one of the things in the diary that's one of the most explosive moments relates to one of my columns, which was I'd written, um, I remember it so clearly, I'd just come back on the red eye from New York and I'd written, I'd been amazed in America how how much contempt the Foreign Secretary at the time, Boris Johnson, was held. And I'd also been talking to various um, EU diplomats and Tory MPs as well. And just this sense that the Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson, was becoming an, uh, this international joke. So I, I wrote this column, rather exhausted and jet-lagged from the red eye, bashed it out. Um, the whole thing went mad, and Boris Johnson absolutely lost it, according to Alan Duncan, and summoned him in, accused him of being the sole source, which of course he wasn't, um, and gave him an absolute berating. And Alan Duncan turned to him. He said to him, why do, you, why do people say I'm an international joke? And Alan Duncan turned to Boris Johnson, apparently, and said, well, look in the effing mirror. <laughs> and that was sort of one of the best moments in the diary. It, it is, it is incredible. by one of my columns. Every person waits until best of there. And, of course, to read them both in The Times, you just need to get yourself a Times digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is the future of pubs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. So we thought, as it is pub reopening day today, we're live at the pub. So we thought, let's speak to some landlords up and down the country. Almost a virtual pub crawl, if you like. Let's kick off with perhaps one of the best known. Oh, there's Peanut, the dog again. Uh, let's kick off with perhaps one of the best known uh, landlords in the country. Tim Martin's the boss of Weatherspoons and joins me now. Hi, Tim. Uh, hi, Matt. Uh, which of your pubs are you at this morning? I'm at our pub with the biggest beer garden possibly in the world, the Imperial in Exeter. Uh, five acres we've ah. got outside, but I'm in the office inside, so I can try and hear you. I know <laughs> it very well. I've had many a pleasant afternoon in the sunshine uh, oh, down well, there. <laughs> How many of your pubs are reopening today? It's about half, about half. And is that because um, the other half don't have enough space to make it worthwhile? Yes. Slightly over half have got beer gardens, but some of them are quite small, and you've got to walk through the pub to get to it, so it's impractical to to open up, unfortunately. Uh, And how profitable is it going to be for uh, Weatherspoon's pubs to to open today, but only being able to use the the outdoor space? Um, Well, our best guess is we're losing about £4 million a week uh, during lockdown. And uh, we we think we might lose three million a week, so it'll improve by one million to an annualised equivalent of 150 million a year. So it's um, uh, where it to continue for a year. So it's not a hat in the air, but it's slightly better than it was last week. You have to uh, uh, count your blessings here, Matt. And long term, what what do you think is the, the viability of of, uh, of pubs in England? Do you think that, that, that they they were, that we sort of permanently affected by what's happened over the last year? I think I think the jury's out. Really, it'll partly depend on what the verdict is of the people, scientists in general, rather than sage and uh, uh, commentators generally, as to whether lockdowns work. If, if the feeling is that lockdowns are a solution to uh, problems of infections and they start to be used more, more widely, um, then um, uh, it may have a bad effect on pubs. So I think it's created a lot of uncertainty just as the rules of, uh, regarding reopening. There's also been a tremendous number of rules which seem arbitrary, um, you know, uh, curfews, substantial meals, etc. So the government's got into uh, micromanagement of pubs. If that continues, the future is bleak. Do you get the sense that uh, the government understands pubs? I know Boris Johnson uh, was planning to visit a pub today. Uh, Instead, he's going to be in the House of Commons paying tribute to Prince Philip. I I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see him in a pub at some point this week. Uh, Do you think that the government understands uh, the plight of the pub industry beyond the sort of the photo op? 
No, I think it's I think it's very much con uh, a photo op government. I think they're in general, unlike you, who's been to the Imperial Beer Garden dinner party goers. My own theory for the last 30, 40 years since I've been in the business is that the UK divides itself into dinner party goers, in which case you get landed next to someone you can't get away with for three or four hours, <laughs> and pub goers who are uh, able to abandon bores to someone else. So I think they're dinner party goers. They've constantly changed the rules in a way that, that shows they don't understand them. So they, particularly, I thought, you have to have a substantial meal. They can't see the problem. The other thing they can't see a problem with, this is an interesting one for, for, for listeners, is um, they think it makes no difference at all if you put in a rule that you have to sit down. Whereas pub goers often, I've been sitting down most of the day, and they like to stand up, shoot the breeze with uh, with other people. So, uh, yeah, I'm slightly cynical about the uh, about that element of the government. Uh, and what about your uh, year, the past uh, 12 months? At the start of the lockdown last year, sort of this time last year, you, you faced quite a bit of criticism for the... Um, your initial response to it and, uh, you know, whether or not staff are going to be paid and that sort of thing. Is there uh, anything that you, you regret about uh, last year? Yeah, well, the, literally the morning of lockdown, I, I did a video to try and uh, reassure staff that they would keep their jobs, they'd be furloughed, etc. It was taken out of context, uh, as these things sometimes are. And uh, uh, I, I regret that it happened. I mean, I think, you know, no disrespect to the Times, regrets it a bit more because I've had two corrections from the Times, corrections from the BBC, Sky, you name it. And uh, it shows that you don't have to say much wrong in the media in the modern world to end up like Piers Morgan. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that, should I? Oh, Paul old Piers, I think Paul, I think Paul old Piers will probably cope. I think he'll probably cope in, uh, in reality. <laughs> and in terms of what, what for you is the perfect pub? We've been talking all morning about the, um, the best sort of fictional pubs. Is, is, there a, is there a pub in fiction, whether it's films or books or whatever, that you think just about sums up the perfect pub? Well, I didn't hear your talk this morning, but it was probably, you may have mentioned George Orwell, who wrote a, an article in the Evening Standard many years ago about uh, the moon underwater, which was no music, um, food available, and a fire in the corner, and uh, congenial customers. And uh, I think the, in one word, what people like in pubs is atmosphere, and they can come in a wide variety, but the X factor is, uh, is atmosphere. It slightly differs depending on what you like, but uh, in general, that's what people go to a pub for. And it's to get away from the missus or the husband, you know. It's, it's another, <laughs> another place where you can sort of chill out in the beer garden not knowing anyone is sometimes very nice. It is very nice. And like you said, at least if you're stood up, you can get away from the, uh, the pub bore uh, standing next to you, which is slightly harder at dinner parties. Uh, Tim Martin, really good to speak to you uh, there. Tim Martin uh, from Weatherspoons, the boss of Weatherspoons, joining us from the Imperial in Exeter uh, with uh, perhaps, was it Europe's biggest beer garden? Uh, apparently, allegedly, uh, it's been suggested. Uh, really good to speak to uh, Tim there. Let us know what you think about um, uh, your favourite pub that you're listening, uh, looking forward to going back to. Uh, you can tweet me at Times Radio, um, or you can text us at 8722, start your message with the word Times. Right, let's continue our, uh, uh, our pub crawl now. Nicholas Hare is the landlord at the Kentish Bell in London, uh, which started serving pints from midnight last night. Good morning, Nicholas. Good morning. 
or, or, or what's this? You, you must be up to early lunchtime now in your mental uh, state, I, or are you ready for bed? I don't know what day or time it is. You, it's, uh, <laughs> so it's, 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 it's a bit of a mix. You threw the doors open at midnight. How many we people were there waiting for you when you did so? Just just the eighteen. Um, we wish now we'd push <laughs> back harder and got got the outdoor um, the back garden um, approved as well. But um, we didn't go for that at first. But um, 18 very happy regular customers, um, how, all very loyal. Are they still with you now? Oh, God, no. No, no, no. <laughs> I, 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 they won't mind me saying this. I chucked them out at three o'clock so I could go to bed. Um, very good. And you're reopening then again today? Yes, yeah, one o'clock. But luckily I won't be working. I'm now going to have a well-earned day off. Very good, very good. Well, Nicholas, stay there because we'll come back to you in a sec. Sarah Simmons is the manager of the Three Mariners in Awe in Kent. Hi, Sarah. Hi, how are you all? I'm very good, I'm very good. How are things down in Kent? Is the sun shining? Have you got your gazebo up? How are, how are preparations? I've got about four layers on. It is pretty cold over here, <laughs> although the sun is trying to get out. I mean, we've, I mean, opening has been a massive challenge. We've got, if I can describe the three mariners, we're on sort of four tiers to our garden. At the end of our garden, we've put up a giant teepee with fairy lights and just made it really bohemian but then to get to our kitchen we have to literally leg it up floor four flights of stairs my husband is looking forward to me losing a bit of weight um but uh (laughs) i know you giggle so what we've done is we've uh, created an outside kitchen and we've worked with uh some fire masters and savage barbecue and uh, we are passionately glowing and excited just to be here and to be open uh, absolutely right. It's really lucky if you have got the outdoor space to open. Unfortunately, at the Rose Inn in Norwich is one of those pubs which doesn't have outdoor space. Uh, it's run by Dawn Hopkins, who joins us now. Hi, Dawn. Hi, yeah. You must be absolutely sick of me banging on about pubs reopening, knowing that you can't this morning. Well, I wouldn't say sick of it. I, I think it's fabulous for all the pubs that can do it. And I think as Sarah's shown, you know, landlords have gone out of their way to, to make the experience for people sitting outside having a drink. Um, a really, really good one. But yes, it, it's a pity I can't open, but I have a, a very, very tiny beer garden in it, and it just wouldn't be possible. But you've adapted uh, over the last year to uh, to adjust to, to not being able to, to open as a pub. Well, yes, hopefully um, next week I'm going to open a deli in one part of my pub. So I've been working very hard to get that ready. Um, and yeah, just really looking forward to having people coming in and seeing my regular customers as well come into that. Um, and it's 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 been a good distraction for me over over lockdown as well to give me something to think about and focus on. And we've got so many brilliant producers in Norfolk as well. So it, it's it's a change for me definitely. I've been a landlady for twenty years, so moving into more retail side of things um, is it's going to be a challenge for me. But I'm very much looking forward to it. And yeah, I can't wait to open the doors at least for something, even if it's not for people to um, come in and sit and have a drink. It feels like sort of full circle. Earlier on, we were talking uh, to uh, Laura from the University of Cambridge. She was talking about pubs and where pubs got their names from originally. And some of them, you know, w- were sort of multi, you know, as well as selling ale, they sold meat and cheese and fish or whatever else. So maybe maybe it's just going back to, to uh, you know, the pub's origins in a way that you're having a deli and a pub combined. Yeah, maybe it is. It, it just seems like the right thing to do for me here. I know other pubs have done similar things. There's a pub up the road for me. It's popped a, a garden centre in its car park, which I think is great as well. <laughs> so I think we've just shown how adaptable we can be as publicans. The, the last year has been so, so tough. 
Um, but, you know, publicans have gone out there, they've dealt with all the regulations and rules that they've had to deal with to, you know, still have a real warm, welcoming place for people to come and have a drink and to socialise. So, yeah, it might you might see a few changes in pubs, but I th- you think it'll be a good thing. You, you talk about a warm welcome. The the button that turns the uh, the outdoor heaters on behind me has been very much my friend this morning as we sit outside the uh, the ship tavern in central London. Um, uh, Nicholas, what do you think about uh, the way that the the pub might change uh, as they are able to reopen, particularly this idea of having to sort of pre-book because it sort of slightly takes away the, the, the sort of spontaneity. You know, you can't nip in somewhere for a quick pint if you've had to book it three weeks in advance. Nicholas. Oh, yes, sorry. Um, yeah, no, terrible, terrible idea, in my opinion. Um, had to take bookings in uh, at Christmas time for obvious reasons because it was indoors. But um, now, no, I, I would. I, I don't like the idea of um, booking to go into a pub either. The one thing I can't wait for is when you can queue at the bar again. That you know everything's normal and the world has <laughs> healed. Everyone will be talking about that, uh, you know, saying how much they're looking forward to it for about uh, five minutes. And then five minutes waiting at the bar, they'll be like, can we go back to table ordering again, please, using the app? Um, uh, Sarah, down in uh, Kent, what have you been doing? You sort of set up a WhatsApp group uh, in or in Kent as well, didn't you? For, you know, really putting the pub at the sort of the centre of the community. Sarah? Our venue historically was a destination. So we had customers come from London or, you know, a, a good two and a half, three hour radius. So although we most certainly looked after our community, we actually had to branch out further into the sticks to look after our customers. So we set up a delivery service uh, that actually went as far as 30 miles. So we've learned so much through becoming IT consultants with our apps to becoming delivery drivers. And I would spend mornings on AA route map to work out the best way to get to some of these places. Uh, yeah, I suppose, yeah, that's that's uh, that's. The, before I let you go, because we asked Tim the same uh, question, we've been running this uh, the World Cup of fictional pubs. Uh, the semi-finals coming to an end in a sec. Uh, the Cantina from Star Wars is currently beating the Hotel Bar from Faulty Towers. The Prancing Pony from Lord of the Rings currently uh, just ahead, but only just ahead of the Winchester uh, from Shaun of the Dead. Uh, I want to ask each of you for your own favourite uh, fictional pub, you know, the one that you'd really like to go and uh, uh, have a drink in. Let's start with you first, uh, Dawn uh, Hopkins from the Rose Inn in Norwich. What do you think, Dawn? Well, it's a slight cheat because it's not a pub, but I always love the bar in Cheers just because of how, how they treated all their customers and they knew everybody and they knew what was going on in their lives. So, But pubs, maybe the Winchester as well, I think. You're allowed to, yeah, there's an asterisk against fictional pubs. It also includes bars, cafes <laughs> and restaurants. So you're allowed, uh, you're allowed the bar from Cheers. Uh, what about you, Sarah, uh, from uh, the Three Mariners in Awe in Kent? I think it would have to be, and I don't know the name of it, but the bar in Star Wars with Jabba the Hutt. That's the cantina. That is definitely the the cantina. That's the very popular one that um, lots of people have voted for. Yeah, because the diversity and just how on earth we've all just had to come together just to get here where we are today. And a big thank you to everyone who supported us on this journey. Exactly right. Uh, what, uh, a really good uh, sentiment there. So let's finish with you then, uh, Nicholas, before you um, go to bed, having opened the Kentish Bell in London at midnight. Um, your favourite fictional pub or bar? You know what, it's a shame. I thought dawn to that one, and it be the one from Cheers. Um, and mostly we do also have someone called Norman. So uh, you are allowed <laughs> to turn around and shout, Norm! But no, it's, <laughs> Dawn's right. You, you know you get to know your customers and to understand them. And therefore, it becomes a much more cosy and sort of intimate setting. And that's, that's what we do. So for me, that one. 
Uh, yeah, Cheers, unfortunately, uh, dropped out in the first round, I think. But um, uh, thanks very much for all of you. That's Dawn Hopkins there, uh, the vice chair of the campaign for pubs, who also runs the, ro- the Rose in in Norwich. We also have Sarah Simmons uh, from the Three Mariners in Kent and uh, Nicholas Hare, the landlord of the Kentish Bell in London. Uh, right then, over the weekend, because he was very busy getting ready for this one, but over the weekend, I also spoke to Glenn Hutchinson from the Spinners at Cowley up in Chorley. As you know, this show is twinned with Chorley. Uh, and so we thought we ought to check in with Glenn and ask him how he was feeling ahead of the reopening. Massive, huge on Monday. It's, uh, it's almost like uh, I'm, I'm more nervous than I was on my wedding night. <laughs> I think the, the, the nervous part is, I think it's the fact that we've been closed now since the start of November, so... You know, a good five months we've we've not been open and, and dealing with people, customers on a daily basis, and it's just a nerve from that really. It's it's almost like when we re, when we opened in two thousand and twelve, the very first day. You know, it's almost like that again. <laughs> and the reason you've been shut for so long is obviously because the tier system meant that, that pubs in your part of the of the world were, were were told to shut much earlier. Yes, yeah, we had the we had the tier system in place, and uh, obviously. Then there was there was the, the the rules got brought in where you couldn't come inside and you know it was it was virtually impossible and then and then there was no drinking whatsoever on public premises so it was it was impossible to operate as a as a pub restaurant so hopefully now we're coming out of that the roadmap out of it is uh, is pointing in the right direction fingers crossed it should be back to normal come June and and tell us about the spinners what sort of pub is it because I know it's a pub restaurant but you know there's obviously lots of different types of pubs are you part of a chain are you a one man band what sort of place is it so we, we it's, our, it's our business. We lease the premises from from a company called Trust Inns, very very uh, very friendly company. I've got, I've got a great working relationship with them. Um, uh, I've had it for ten years, and it's it's food, it's food predominantly. But we we just like to create a good atmosphere and for it for people to feel comfortable and welcome. Where there's food, where there's drink, you know, the the, the relaxed atmosphere of. Of, of the good old-fashioned pub where you can eat and drink and, you know, you don't have to be too dressed up, you know, but you, you enjoy <laughs> good quality food and drink at the same time, you know. And what about the, the, the amount of support that you've had in the last 12 months? Um, what have you been able to get access, you know, in terms of treasury support or business support and all that sort of thing? If you haven't, you know, not having a business behind you, what have you, you had? So we've had, we've had grants from... Uh, we had one at the, at, the, at the start when we went into lockdown last year. We had another, a smaller one, later in the year. Then we we started with the uh, support grants from from that were allocated through the council to ourselves from the government. Um, we got thirteen hundred pound a month. It sounds a lot. It doesn't go a long way towards your bills, but it was helpful, you know. And it's meant you're still there now to reopen. Well, that's it. That's the main thing. If we didn't have it, then. We wouldn't be, we wouldn't be, and you wouldn't be having this conversation, you know. <laughs> was there ever a point when you thought, I don't know if we are going to be able to reopen? Yeah, I thought, I, I, you know, we, we had a, we had a great, a great period when we reopened in July to, to November. It was, it was fantastic. But with this industry, you rely hugely on your income and your revenue from December, um, and and that sort of floats November. And then January and February, when you when you have your bad times, so you know the, the the fear was always that come January, if if the government said right away we go and we open, but people didn't have that money to go out and spend because of the time of year it was, and 
you know, recovering from Christmas, you, you always panic and think, you know, what what's going to happen? And we, we were, we were genuinely worried, but, you know, touch wood, hopefully people will come out and support us in the droves and... Uh, and what about how things will be different this time around? I mean, are you sort of all bookings? I mean, lots, been lots of people talking about the changing nature of the pub and, you know, you should be able to just walk into a pub. You don't have to book three weeks in advance. But are you booked up for months in advance? No, no, we're not booked up. We we, we basically, we, we have we have two places. We have, we have our Spinners pub and we have one over at Adlington called the Carbell as well. So at the Spinners, we have an area outside that's heated and lit undercover, but it, it's COVID guidelines. You can sit 52 people under there. And then at the Carbwell at Adlington, we have a bigger area where we can sit 60 to 70. But then we still have sort of 50 or 60 seats at both places on top of that, where people can just sort of roll up and... Yeah, yeah, of course. And do you think that the, the pub experience will change either because people are, I don't know, more nervous about being in a room full of people or maybe because, um, you know, there's all this talk of COVID passports and that sort of thing? I think they will change when we when we reopen. I do think things will change. How how much? I think this first month, certainly, if, you know, where people haven't had the COVID jab or you know they're still very nervous about the the system of going out and are they safe i think people will probably wait till they know that that come sort of may time they'll they'll be able to go in somewhere but with with sort of restrictions i do i do think people will be extremely worried but i also think on the other hand there's so many people who are that fed up of being stuck inside and not being able to have a pint with a, you know, the ride mate on a Saturday afternoon or a or a Friday night. I think you, you, you're going to end up with sort of a a bit of a, a bugle come twelve o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, and everyone will be charging <laughs> out, you know. And what about uh, the, this idea of COVID passports? Would you be happy to be checking, you know, if people have had a jab or had a test before they came into the pub, or do you think that'd be too much of a of an imposition, it would change the nature of just nipping into the pub. I think that if if they brought COVID passports, say it'd just be it'd, it'd just be you know commercial suicide. Realistically, you, you, you're going to have everyone who's had a jab over, let's say forty five to fifty, who's, who've had the first jab, and then everyone below that age that can't go in a in a place because they've not had a jab. It's it's unfair, you know, if they're adhering to guidelines. And they're adhering to the to the government regulations, and that should be that should be enough to keep people happy. Yeah, and keep people safe as well. Well, best of luck with it all. What are you most looking forward to, Glenn? Having a pint. Now, now the now I've got <laughs> beer back on site, and uh, we've we've cleaned our lines this morning and got everything connected up. The 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 beers are. Uh, they're going to need tasting just to make sure that the uh, the standards are as uh, high as they should be. <laughs> Fantastic. I think after the last uh, few months, you've probably deserved it. Glenn, really good to speak to you. Same with you, buddy. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Yeah, Glenn Hutchinson uh, from the Spinners at Cowling up in Chorley. One day we will get to go to Chorley rather than just speaking to him on the phone. Uh, uh, we'll uh, hopefully do that soon. And we're definitely going to go there because uh, he, he keeps promising me beer and food. Up next, I asked Jack Stein, chef and son of Wick, what he would do if he ruled the world. Yeah. 
Yes, here on Times Radio, we know that politicians don't always have the right answers. Why every Monday at this time, we like to ask someone from outside politics what they would do if they were in charge. And on a day when pubs and restaurants are finally allowed to throw open, if not their doors, at least the gates to their beer gardens, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the chef and chief director of Rick Stein Restaurants, Jack Stein. Hi, Jack. Hey, how are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. How are you, more importantly? Well, I'm actually in our pub, actually, in the office upstairs. Yeah, we've just opened uh, at 12. We've got a beer garden full of uh, punters, and um, everyone is seems to, to be very happy. So, And the weather's good in Cornwall. I know it's been snowing up in London. I saw Dad was <laughs> posting a picture this morning, which isn't great. But, yeah, we're in Cornwall. It's, it's lovely. So, hang on. You're in Cornwall doing all the work opening the pub, and your dad's in London. <laughs> Yeah, well, we do have a restaurant in London, in West London as well, so he is close. To, he's probably going to pop in there for some lunch. But yeah, I, yeah, I do a lot of the heavy lifting, really, That's to be honest. Exactly right. We'll talk more about that in just a sec. But, but first, we're putting you in charge of the world. So if, <laughs> yes. you, if you're in charge of the world, what's the first big change you'd want to make? Well, being in charge of the world is a, you know, is a great honour. So I'd like to thank you for putting me out. But I think most for me... My, our company is run equally by my mum and my dad, and I often find my mum makes far better decisions than, than dad in terms of business. <laughs> and so I would make sure that um, there's more of a sort of meritoc- meritocratic kind of system of government and really kind of the, 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 this pandemic shown that quite often female leaders are far better in, at running things. So I would, um, that would be my biggest change. I think my mum's shown me over the, all the years that I've been around that, you know, she, she just has a great, you know, there's just something different about the way men and, and women uh, run things. I, I find um, females have got a fantastic um, sense of, uh, of, of how things should go. So that would be my big change. So go on, um, then give us an example of when uh, y- your dad said one thing and your mum said the other and she turned out to be right. Well, it would always be around, you know, ideas around business, where to open and where to, you know, you know, things like, you know, she's just got this this way of cutting through um, the sort of the noise, whereas dad tends to be a bit more kind of um, not hot headed, but he's a chef. He's a bit <laughs> impulsive, impulsive, yeah. possibly. Yeah, Impo- yeah impulsive. And, and what will happen is that mum will say something to him. He'll go away and think about it and come back and say, yeah, you know, you, you were right all along. And, and quite often she does like to pull out the old I to- told you so when things have been very successful. But, that, you know, that, that's fine. <laughs> so one of the questions I, I was going to ask you is who would be advising you in your role, role in the world? It sounds like your mum is going to be right, right there next to you. <laughs> She's my right hand, um, right hand um, woman. So now what I've got, so I've got, so I've gone for a kind of um, sort of semi semi understandable political system to what we run here. But obviously there are some historical characters in here, and I will um, preface. Yeah, it we, we let you have anyone. They could be dead or alive, real or fictional. So who have you yeah. got advising you? Yeah, so I've got um, so Florence Nightingale's in charge of the health service. I've Excellent. got Mary Curie on science. Yep, um, and I've got Greta Thunberg on green issues. Very then, good. Noam Chomsky and International Affairs, Home Secretary Bernie Sanders, and Hannibal Barker on Defence. Wow! I mean, yeah, that's that's the that's the most complete cabinet I think we've uh, we've ever had. Um, that's very yeah. good. And what sort of leader with all those people around you? What sort of leader will you be? Are you, are you a dictator? Are you sort of are you a delegator? Are you hands on, hands off. I mean, I suppose no, being I, a chef, I, you're quite hands on. I well, I'm also a good delegator. I okay. would. 
yeah, I think delegation is the way forward for me because um, I know that I can't possibly be as good as these people at what they do. So I wouldn't micromanage them. I'd let them crack on. I mean, Hannibal might need reining in on defence. He might want to <laughs> on the offence a bit. But um, other than that, I can see them all working quite well together. And then Chomsky, Chomsky and Hannibal in the same room would be very interesting. I think, I think you'll get a, di- a broad uh, range of views, uh, which is obviously <laughs> quite good. And then you have to make the decision after. And because all political careers always end in failure, what would be your vice that would eventually bring about your downfall do you think yeah i'm afraid it's going to be red burgundy and cheese yeah. <laughs> what a way a to lot, go though a, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of uh, unpasteurized french cheese and and very expensive red burgundy so yeah that's what they'll find when they you know when they finally topple my statue um they that, that there'll be a lot of burgundy in the cellar in, uh, <laughs> in the fridge now then talk to me about the pub uh, down where you are right now uh, what is what's on the menu what what make, make me hungry basically lunchtime's approaching <laughs> what would yeah, you so... if i was down there today what, what would you be cooking up for me today well we do a, you know the pub does a fantastic um um uh, cod curry so it's uh it's a, an indian it's the, when rick went to do his indian series it's the best curry he found on his travels of india and it's a, one of our top sellers so that is fantastic and obviously you know ham egg and chips is just one of those classic oh. pub dishes i think and you know that people just are looking forward to getting amongst so we have some wonderful ham from a local butcher in in st Austell and um, these free range eggs from you they're they're you know as, as orange as they come and uh you know a pint of st Austell's oh. tribute you're describing heaven jack you're describing heaven uh having had a lovely week uh down in um Cornwall last last summer uh, where we actually had some decent weather and yeah quite a lot of tribute as well um and in terms of the 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 restaurant industry and the pub industry how have things been for the last 12 months what would you really like to see you know now in the next few weeks and months i think you know we've luckily we've you know in being in Cornwall we've been very fortunate i mean some of my I mean, contemporaries and, and, and friends in London and big cities, they're just really struggling. So, I mean, obviously, hospitality, I think the first few weeks, I think that every, the customers are going to come, obviously, give us a bit of a break. We've been closed for four months. So there's going to be a few mistakes, teething problems. And just and, and really, I think central central cities, just try, if you can, you're looking at, you know, if you can't find a, an Airbnb or somewhere to stay in Cornwall because it's full, maybe just look at a city break or something. Just, you know, because central London hotels, central London restaurants or central city restaurants, they really are going to struggle because everyone's going to be fleeing for the coast. So maybe choose maybe a city break, you know, as you know, the international tourists aren't back yet. And I, you know, I really feel that that's like a part of the, of our industry that's going to need a lot of support in in the next sort of few months. Whereas rest, you know, Cornwall's going to do fine. We've been Rick's basically been advertising it nonstop on the BBC for the last. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not saying don't come to Cornwall, but you know, maybe just think of a city break potentially. Exactly, or do both. You can go to Cornwall and have a city break. And just finally, because we've been doing the World Cup of fictional uh, pubs, uh, also including bars, cafes, and restaurants. Is there any particular fictional restaurant that you'd like to have worked in? Uh, The restaurant at the end of the universe top choice i think that's the first person who said that today that's an excellent (laughs) excellent suggestion well we've come to the end of this episode of the red box podcast don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from listen to my times radio show every monday to thursday 10 till 1 uh you can listen on dab radio on your smart speaker get the times radio app you can also listen to the red box podcast of the times radio app as well and if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about then you need a time subscription to get that go to times.radio forward slash subscribe
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.